Welcome to WWDMD, a podcast that is all about peeling back the curtain on what clinicians really think and feel as they work with others. My guests, clinicians, who are also sometimes clients themselves, risk their vulnerability as they publicly share their emotional reactions to their clients, disclose their challenges in doing the work, and reveal their personal backgrounds. I'm Dr. Myers. I'm a psychotherapist in New York City with 30 years of practice experience specializing in anxiety and depressive disorders, as well as sibling relationships and family systems. I'm also a professor of social work at Malloy University on Long Island. I see this as a journey of self-reflection for not only our guests, but you, because with each episode, I'm hopeful that you will learn something new about yourself. Please note that any discussion of case details have been modified to protect the privacy of our clients. What would Dr. Myers do? Hey, everyone. We're here talking today about empathy and silence, those two concepts that sound so simple, but as we learned from episode 14, titled The Art of Empathy and Silence, it ain't so easy. So to provide empathy, we have to contend with our own desire to fix things, with uh, wanting to join with the other person in their distress, or we may tend to silver line it to try and make them feel better, all well-intentioned, but somehow it seems to fall flat when somebody truly needs just to feel understood and heard. And when it comes to silence, a lot of us struggle with the discomfort of that moment or moments between people when conversation just tends to fall at a level that doesn't uh, make us comfortable. So today I'm back with two Malloy University 2023 graduates, Alyssa Lombardo and Stephanie Blackwell. And we're going to be talking about their challenges with empathy and silence. Well, you don't need to listen to that episode 14 to connect with us today because I think this is a standalone topic. Yet it may be neat to see just how these students have grown and how you too can develop these skills. But today we're going to specifically focus on what Alyssa and Stephanie have learned and how they got there. I really wanted to concentrate on silence because for me, it's something that I always struggled with. Um, I always felt the need to fill the space in silence. Um, and then when I started my journey in becoming, pursuing my social work career, I found it very hard sitting with clients or even in the classroom and there was silence. I always felt that I had to fill that void or fill the space with noise. Um, even from the first time thing I do when I wake up in the morning, I turn the TV on, I put the radio on. Like I always needed background noise. Um, but through my education and my time at Malloy and working in the field and in just self-awareness was huge for me. My own growth, I realized that me filling that space, filling that void of the silence was the fear of me being alone with my own thoughts and my own insecurities. So I had to fill that. And it really, I think for people Along the beginning of my journey, I kind of did a disjustice to the clients I was working with because I never let them process or I wasn't even processing my own emotions and I was projecting my own insecurities onto them trying to fill that space. So it is something that I consciously am very aware of now and I really, really worked hard on 
I'm still have a long way to go, but it's more of a self-awareness thing and more self-reflective now on how to work with clients and being able to sit in the discomfort. And it's not just my discomfort, but it's also theirs and trying to just hold them in that moment and letting them be, be with those emotions. Because I think we can't start the journey of healing until you acknowledge those emotions that you're feeling. And the silence allows you to really, really do that. Yeah, really well said. It makes me think about when you say you didn't want to sit alone with your thoughts. I wonder if people who have a hard time with tolerating silences between and amongst people are the same people who have a hard time spending time with themselves. Because it seems that it would make sense that that also leaves a lot of time to be alone in one's thoughts. That's interesting, though, because I love my alone time. <laughs> um, friends of mine, family members know, like, I I am the person sitting at the restaurant at the table eating lunch by myself. I go to the movies by myself. So it is kind of interesting that I have to fill the void of noise, right? Like, I don't want the silence, but I do like my alone time. So I guess I'm kind of a, what do they call it? An anomaly, right? Really? <laughs> I don't, a a I don't little know. bit of a contradiction. So but that's curious to me because going to the movies is a little different because you're not alone with your thoughts. You right. are watching a movie and one could think certainly going out to eat, but I thought, wow, well, well, do you bring a book? Or do I do you bring a book. You bring a book. I do bring a book. And there's always background noise. So you're never really silent. Mm, mm, mm. I'm the exact opposite. I have such a hard time being alone and I tend to have a lot of anxiety and I do ruminate on those insecurities or fears, especially at nighttime. So I tend to stay up late and I think I just like to surround myself with people. I feel like when I'm home alone, I'm either on the phone or watching TV or doing something that involves noise. It's something I definitely want to work on. I value my alone time in, but only there can only be so much. You know, I think after a while I'm like lonely or I just want to do something. So how does that trend, knowing how, who you are and how you are, how does that translate into your work with clients or now maybe in your relationships? You know, I don't know how you've taken this, but I'm hoping that the audience is not, who may not be social workers, maybe just people interested in, why they do things the way they do or think the way they do or feel the way they do would also be able to relate to this. So how have you been able to move through that? You know that in this profession you've chosen, it's important to be able to do. Knowing that and getting there are two very different things. So how'd you work on that this year? It's a quick remind. well, not just a quick reminder, but it's a lot of self-reflective and a lot of self-awareness and not quick to just react, right? You have to, it's stopping yourself to really think and allow yourself that space to really think before you talk. Like it's something I've said before, especially in episode 14, for those have heard, have heard me say that I always used to speak before I think, I would just react and just talk. And I've learned through the work that I'm doing through field, through being in the field, through my current job, um, as a case manager, I you can't do that because it comes out in sometimes in not genuine, and you don't want to just say anything just to say it, right? Like you want to come across genuine. You want to. I care deeply for the work that I'm doing and the clients that I see, so it has to be meaningful. So for me, it was more of that, and also asking myself, 
who is this benefiting? Who is it benefiting me? Is it benefiting the client? Why am I trying to just fill this space or just constantly talk? What is so wrong with the silence? And through that, through helping others, I've also learned to work on myself and really deal with the things that I didn't want to, that I was afraid to be alone with those thoughts. So it's- Boy, it's, you sound like someone I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, I still have a long way to go, but I'm-, I'm Good for you. More than where I was when I started. Right. And so I'm going to push you a little bit further. And Alyssa, you can speak to this if it resonates with you as well. That you know, so you're reciting to me when I joke and say you sound like someone I know. I mean, that's what I've tried to teach over this past year. But knowing it and implementing it, is there's a real challenge there. So how did you tolerate the discomfort of doing that? Or, or and maybe it's not an or, and um, keep yourself in check. A lot of self-talk and a lot of practice. I practice through my work and my job. I'm meeting with clients all the time. Um, one specific client I th- I stays with me and it will probably stay with me throughout my career is she really broke down um, and confided in me in something very, very horrific that happened to her and changed her life. And she began bawling right in front of me. And it made me feel so uncomfortable that I didn't know what to do. And I was like, I'm in my head. I'm saying I'm in over my head. I'm going to need help on this. But I just forced myself to just be in that moment with her. And I go back to that moment and how much it helped her. And that's really why I'm doing this is we go into social work to help people and to know that that true, that moment of letting her just be in the silence, in her own tears and in all those emotions, it truly, truly helped. Um, so knowing that, and then it also helped me. And I do it in my own personal relationships. My husband has said I've stopped just throwing things out, you know, verbally. And I've stopped to process and think before I talk and the silence is okay. But it's still, I mean, there are still moments of discomfort, but it's a lot of self-talk and asking myself questions and a lot of self-reflective work. That's great. And how do you know it helped the client? What did you see that indicated that this is productive to be silent? Silent is productive. That's, that's an interesting statement as I hear myself say it, right? Because it feels like we're not being productive by sitting with silence. We're not doing enough. So how did you know? What was your measure to see or hear? Her breathing, her body language, the tears stopping, and then the words that she said afterwards. And then the relationship that we built from that moment on to I still meet with her. So, and in fact, just the other day she said, I've helped her so much from that moment on and that she gained so much strength from me and just listening to her and just being with her. That's amazing. That's what I always say too about interventions and silence is actually, I think can be considered an intervention that you know whether it worked or didn't by the client's reaction. That's what guides you. I think it's something I still struggle with, but in my work with clients, I've gotten a little better I remember working with the client for the last few months and we met over the phone or on Zoom and I probably couldn't get a word in. I think for a 45 minute session, I said like a couple of words here and there. 
And it wasn't so much silence, so to speak, because I couldn't really offer anything. But at that time, she was going through so much anxiety and going through such a difficult time that she needed me to listen. And I remember thinking kind of what you were saying before, it doesn't seem productive, right? Because I kept telling myself, what am I doing to help her? What kind of, what am I providing at this moment? And then after the end of the session, I really was self-reflective and thought, but that's what she needed, right? She needed me to listen. She felt that I was actively listening, even though we were on Zoom or over the phone that day. She she thanked me at the end. She said, oh, I hope I'm not stressing you out. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. And of course, I said, you know, you're not stressing me out. That's what I'm here for. I'm happy I was able to provide that space for you to feel comfortable opening up to me and, and sharing your anxieties and and what you're going through with me. So that alone meant so much to her. And I'm over here thinking like, is it enough? What am I doing? Things like that. So I feel like being like an active listener is so valuable. It's probably one of the most important aspects or skills when working with clients. Yeah. I mean, I think think that that's a great, another way of having to sit with silence because Stephanie's talking really about when there is silence between two people and you're talking about sitting with your own silence. And I would imagine, like I'm thinking, I'm imagining myself in that situation because I am in it often with clients and people in general who like to talk a lot. And I get a very different feeling in that than sitting with silence between two of us. So in Alyssa, in your example, I get frustrated. I start to get angry. Sometimes I even get annoyed, even if I know that it's serving the other person well and they need that. So it doesn't mean I don't like them. One's got nothing to do with the other. It's contending with my own counter-transference, not having had a voice growing up and really having to fight for that. And I feel like I'm being intruded on and that there's no room for me. But I think that's the emotional piece. But then the intellectual piece understands the purpose of it. And for me, that helps me deal with my counter-transference. So I know oftentimes we have to work with ourselves emotionally, and that's how it works. That's how we get better doing the things that we find challenging. But sometimes it's getting to your intellectual place, removing yourself from the emotional reaction so that you can then settle your emotional reaction. So in that case, I'm moving from my emotions to my intellect back to my emotions so that I can soothe myself and know that I'm providing something for somebody who so desperately needs to be heard in the moment. I think also you you brought up counter-transference. For me, growing up also, it was nothing I ever did was good enough. So I had to fill the void or just trying to be heard. And I go back to those moments where what did I need back then? I just needed somebody to listen to me. Or I needed, like you said, people just want to be heard. I hear that there's one client here that I'm working with currently that says that all the time. Nobody ever listens to me. Nobody, they don't hear me. They don't hear me. Nobody listens. And that just stays with me as like, I want them to know that I hear them. And how do you do that? By active listening, like Alyssa said, but also sitting in the silence and letting them know that you're there sitting with them through their, whether it's your discomfort, their discomfort, those emotions, you have to feel it to go through it. So sitting with them in that and just looking back on my own life and reflecting, saying, what did I need back then when I was younger? What was I looking for? I was looking for somebody to hear me. So how do you do it? You can't talk when somebody is talking. You know, if somebody's talking over you, they're not listening. 
So the, that's helped me with my growth in my in sitting with the silence. That's really interesting because moments. so your identification with that allows you to be empathic and mm-hmm. therefore tolerate the silence. And so I think it is that empathy that allows us to also be able to sit with silence with a little bit more ease. So it's interesting that our topics today are empathy and silence, and maybe there's a bigger connection than you know I had thought about earlier. And I don't know if we want to go into that, but I saw that Alyssa, you you might also have something to say. Well, I was going to get back to one thing that you said. It's funny because when I was working with that particular client, I felt the same thing. Same thing. I was emotionally frustrated because I felt like you know I couldn't offer any feedback. I couldn't get a word in, and then it wasn't until I had my supervision session uh, with my supervisor who helped me realize the intellectual piece of um, providing what she needed um, at that time. But I wanted to just add to what Stephanie said as well, is I also can relate to that feeling of past experiences of wanting to be heard and doing whatever I can for someone to hear me or listen to me. And it's funny, maybe that does play a part in who I am now, potentially, I would say, I guess, with my work with clients, but also in my personal life. And it's it's funny. I'll tell you something funny. My partner, like we talk before we go to bed, and you know, I usually stay up late, like I mentioned before. But um, every time we talk, and I can hear her getting like tired and tired, and she's like, "Your voice is soothing. It puts me to sleep." And I'm like, "I don't want you to sleep. I want you to listen to me. Like, come on, you know." And um, I look at it in like a funny sense, but I guess you, you, I could be slightly annoyed. But now I just, you know, okay, this is not the time to talk to her at eleven o'clock at night. That's really kind of that's a cute story, yes. <laughs> but it really like sorry, I went I went off into my own head thinking about my ability to tolerate that now as an adult who still intellectually understands this when it's happening in my personal life, but still contends with the inner child, so to speak, who's like frustrated. Uh, this is what I need right now. So, and and then you have to kind of make room for who this other person is and where they are in the moment and what their needs are. And it's not a personal affront or a personal attack that you're not being listened to in a given moment. There's context. And as you're saying, it's late. And that's what tends to happen when couples talk in bed is one of them starts to drift off at some point. It's just <laughs> natural, right? But I, I mean, I, I think it's a... It's a great example of how this stuff is an endless journey. You know, it's something that, as I always say, we're works in progress and we don't just all of a sudden become great at empathy or great at sitting with silence or great at developing whatever skill we need to develop. It, it's, uh, I don't want to know if I should say battle. It's a continuous battle, but it's a continual check, right? Self-check. So is there more to say about the connection between empathy and silence or should we just switch over to empathy? I think they're, they're, I think they're, they go hand in hand. So we can switch over to empathy. I mean, for me, I've always thought I was an empathic person, but I struggled with silence. But but I think as I have gotten better or more aware of my struggle with silence, it didn't take away the empathic person that I am. Alyssa, I remember when you um, were starting the internship, you were working with the homeless population. And one of your questions was, I don't know how I can be empathic because I'm so far away from imagining or being homeless. How do I get in touch with that? And how do I develop that empathy? And we talked a bit about that uh, on that prior episode. But you tell me, what what did you come to learn over this year? And how did you find that point of empathy? Yeah, sure. So 
as we previously mentioned, I was so worried about having that like sort of connection or portraying um, empathy. And I've come to realize that it's not about going through the same experience as another person. It has nothing to do with that. But it's really about sharing that or really listening to that um, the emotions that they're uh, feeling or trying to just show them that you are you're listening and understanding their point of view. So it has nothing to do with either relating to it or even agreeing, agreeing to it or agreeing with them, but just to show them that I'm here, I'm I'm present and what I'm kind of showing them. So I need to be mindful of my own, my own tone, my own body language, my own communication for them to feel comfortable for us to really build that rapport and develop that connection. So in a way, you expanded your understanding of empathy. So originally, I'm assuming, based on what you just said, that you thought that empathy was would mean that you would have to experience the same or a similar experience as somebody else in order to feel for them. But you have since found that, as you just mm-hmm. said, you can uncover the emotional experience that they are going through and get in touch with that personally, meaning trying to really experience the emotions underlying the situation. Yeah, exactly. And over the last eight or nine months or so, I've done a lot of research on empathy and, you know, I've done some scholarly research, but generally speaking, if you just Google like what is empathy, right? Or empathy versus sympathy, you're going to see something along the lines of to walk in another person's shoes. So I'm like, what does that mean? And that's all over the place. So you can figuratively try to imagine what they're going through, but it's not, you don't even have to do that. I think for you to provide that space to you know, to sit with them and to just show, just show them that you're here. And there might be a situation where you could say, or sorry, the client will say to you, you know, you don't understand because you haven't been in this position. And I used to have so much fear about how would I respond to that? But I think there's nothing wrong with saying you're right. I haven't experienced that experience, but I, I could understand where you're coming from. I'm hearing the, you know, the emotions and the your thoughts about the situation. And if they feel like that, if you're actively listening, right, if you're showing a lot of those engagement skills, then that's really what they want. I think at the end of the day, validation is huge. And I think that's a big part of empathy. But I also feel like there are so many building blocks to empathy. Like empathy is not its own thing. Like there's so many different ways and different things we can do that kind of like fall under this like how to be empathetic or what empathy really means. So I would want to ask you to name those things because I think that that's a valuable tool and lesson for every single person on this earth. (laughs) Because I think that empathy builds connection and we all want to feel connected. So if they have the tools to do this, I think that they'll have more satisfying relations. So one of the things that I think you're talking about is naming the feeling so that if somebody is talking, 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 and they either say, I'm so exhausted, and you can use another adjective to describe exhaustion so that you show that you're right on the same page with them, or they don't name the feeling, but you identify it for them, right? So it must be so exhausting, right? Whatever they are experiencing, or again, whatever the word is that would really mirror where they were in the moment. But I'm wondering if you have other ideas that you're thinking about as well. 
Dr. Myers, I think that's a great point. I think there's also a time where, um, you know, you want to use like those skills, like the, the paraphrasing or, you know, summarizing, but also by asking a question to show that, you know, is this what you mean? Or kind of just like a follow-up so they know, oh, okay, they could be talking for like five or 10 minutes and they might think, okay, they didn't hear anything that I said, or they're like off in their own world. But for you to just offer these little little tidbits of, of either questions or comments, or even just like, mm-hmm, or just kind of showing that you're really there, I think that that means a lot. And then that could just open up the conversation uh, even more and to build a deeper relationship. Because I think depending on the work um, that we're doing with clients, you know, obviously would you know, depend on the type of conversations that you have. But of course, in the beginning, regardless, you want to understand who they are, where they're coming from, what they're going through. And those conversations could get pretty deep. So you want them to feel heard. You want them to be comfortable and you want to provide a safe place. Right. And and what does that look like exactly? Absolutely. I think the checking in is, is key because then they know that they don't just know that you're listening, but that's how you know that you, you understand you're, you're clarifying, you're trying to get a better understanding of what they're saying and how they're feeling. For me, um, I've made many mistakes in this. And I think empathy has a lot to do with as when we're still learning and out in the beginning of the field, why it's so crucial is self-disclosure. I've always felt the need to to self-disclose or turn it around and share my own experience with a client or with somebody so they know I'm empathetic or to know that, that I truly get what they're going through to show empathy and validate their feelings. But I think that's the biggest mistake a lot of us make. And I've learned through my education, through my time at Malloy and through my time at the field that I don't have to always self-disclose. I just have to dive into those emotions, whatever those feelings and emotions are. Um, And a quick story, another client of mine went through something deeply traumatizing for them, something that I related to. Um, Of course, their, their experience, them being different, their experience was a little different, but those feelings are still the same. So I didn't have to self-disclose my own personal experience on that. I just had to dive into those feelings. And I told her how I felt in that moment. I said, I can only imagine that this, this is how you feel right now. And she looked at me and she was like, Stephanie, are you psychic? She's like, that's exactly how I feel. And it was almost like in that moment, the, like the light bulb went off in my head. Like, this is why you don't always need to, or you don't need to self-disclose. You just have to dive into those emotions and what that client is feeling at that moment to show empathy and to validate what they're going through. Um, I think I just promoted on social media <laughs> a, a blurb that sounds very much like this. I, it was in regard to trauma, but the idea was it can be more powerful to use your experience rather than to share it. Absolutely. And and I think Stephanie, you just you know summed up that idea perfectly with how we're able to again a different form of empathy. Put our really put ourselves in somebody else's situation based on if we did have a similar situation or experience, and how we're able to use that to really be attuned to what that person is going through. And it's more powerful than saying, yeah, I went through this too, because oftentimes when people do that, I think the receiver of that often feels a bit deflated, feels as though I'm trying to convey how I feel. And even though I get it, you've been through something similar and you want, you can you feel like you can understand, it's taking away 
from my experience in the moment. It's and, almost dis- it's almost dismissive, I think. Mm-hmm. Like if you because you're turning it around on you, right? And they're almost like, well, this isn't about you; it's about me. So it's almost like you're dismissing them. And it, it took. I, I still have to self talk myself into not sharing, you know, or self disclosing, even in my personal life. Like when I'm talking to friends or my husband and he's sharing something, it's almost like somebody don't turn this around on you. It's not about you; it's about them and what they're feeling right now, and diving yeah. into those emotions. Yeah. And I think another way of being able to express that is just generally saying, yeah, you know, a lot of people have those feelings. They'll similar, like if we're trying to yeah. normalize somebody's experience and validate them, you know, I've had that experience, but a lot of people share that. I think that's very powerful as well. And, uh, is very supportive and, as I said, I think validating. I remember doing like a questionnaire. It's like an empathy scale for social workers. And some of the questions on there was, I think when a client is upset, could be kind of any kind of interpretation of that. I try to remember a time where I felt the same way. So I remember thinking, we don't want to get too caught up in our own emotions or our own self and things when working with clients. But at the time, it is helpful. Like what Stephanie said when working with that client, she did go through a similar experience. And she does. She remembers those feelings where she was able to listen and go ahead and um, be there for that client. So I think, um, in a sense, that's kind of what it's all about. Yeah. And I think that you bring up a good point. That's that's part of the emotional drain of the work which is why self-care is so important is because you're taking on all of these feelings and emotions of your clients. And if you're you know, trying to display empathy or doing the work really deeply, you're also holding their emotions for them when they might not even be able to be in touch with them. You're aware of what they're experiencing and it's triggering or touching in feelings that you can relate to or that you're trying to get yourself to re-experience in a way so that you can be empathic for them. Imagine doing that. Well, I'm sure you can imagine that hour after hour after hour with each client who needs to be held, I'm saying emotionally held in a very different way than than the one before. So in one minute, you're tapping into your anxiety and the next minute depression and the next minute loss and the next minute hour, right? Whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. But the transitions of these feelings, which is why it's important to have hopefully an eclectic practice where you're not working with all depressed clients or all anxious clients and that there's different levels or degrees of these distressors or stressors in a given day. And if not, or even so, you need to do something at the end of the day that allows you to release some of these feelings because it's really, really hard work. I'd like to get back to that idea of the skills or the building blocks. And um, I think you were saying, can these be learned, right? And of course, like the skills, those engagement skills, a lot of the practical clinical skills can be learned. But I think for a lot of us um, in the social work field or maybe any other helping professions, I think empathy is something that's so like innate in us and like natural that we don't even realize that we're doing it. Maybe not for all of us, but I think a lot of us can can say that it's something within us that we have. And yes, you can teach those skills, but you can't teach someone how to care. That's, That's a deep observation. Yes, it I'm going to let Stephanie you know what I mean? tackle that for a second. <laughs> let me ponder that while I come back to it. Go ahead, <laughs> yeah. Stephanie. That's interesting because growing up in a very sports-oriented household, um, I was played sports my whole life. I married a college football coach. So we always, our motto is you can't teach heart. 
right? So you can't teach it's heart, heart, heart. Uh-huh. Yeah, like uh-huh. to have somebody to have a heart. Like you have to love to be success. My father always said, as the coach in him always said, to be successful in any game, it doesn't matter how skilled you are or talented you are. You have to love what you're doing. You have to have heart. So Alyssa, you just made me think of that when you said that, like, you know, a lot of us go into the field and we have that, and you know, empathy side of us, right? We want to, we want to help. But it just made me think of that, that you can't teach somebody how to care. Some people are more caring than others. Not everybody have, has that innate compassion inside them. So it's definitely an interesting, it's definitely an interesting concept. But yeah, we are. I mean, as social workers, we are here. We want to help. We want to. But I always go back to we be why do we become social workers? We're trying to heal we heal ourselves through the journey. And I I mean, I definitely have come. I look back to when I started at Malloy to now, and that's two, two and a half years, and I'm in such a different place. You're sounding like a I Dr. Started. Myers Jr. over there. <laughs> <laughs> See? Oh, yeah. I'm, glad, I'm glad our work uh, paid off. Um, Alyssa, wow, you really just made me think. So You're speechless. Um, I want to say, I want to put in just two cents about this, maybe three cents. Um, I just want to <laughs> say that, okay, so yes, I think a lot of us go into this field to heal ourselves, whether or not we're aware of that or not. We're conscious of that. Sometimes people say that they want to be like the social worker they had and they want to be able to provide that and kind of pass that on to somebody else. Nonetheless, I still think that there's a lot of us who go into this field who, because of the identification with the populations that we serve, and again, I don't necessarily mean uh, having had same experiences, but knowing what trauma is, knowing what hurt is, um, we are tend to be driven into the desire to be healing or help help to heal other people. Given that, it doesn't necessarily mean people know how to be caring or be empathic. And so in that sense, I think that we have to teach it. For some, definitely it comes easier than others. But sometimes one's own hurt, pain, or trauma leads them to cut off their emotions, Mm -hmm. to not be attuned to other people's emotions because they're not attuned to their own, because they had to cut them off or suppress them in order to function. Right. So the where it may come naturally for you to offer empathy or to show that you care, that might be dangerous for other people or they just might not know how. Doesn't mean they're going to be a bad social worker. It means that they probably do have heart, but we have to help them find it. So an interesting statement or question that you're putting out there, right, to ponder. Really interesting. But uh, off the air, Alyssa, in one of our meetings, you said something about your interpretation of empathy, which I thought was pretty brilliant. Remember what it was? The bridge that fills the gap between us. Yes. The bridge that builds the gap between fills, us. Fills, fills. Fills. Br- I'm saying it again. The bridge that fills, fills the gap the g- between us. Wow. You made, an, you made an impact with that statement. See, we all remembered it. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Anything else that you learned about empathy or how you want to define it or anything you want to leave our audience with? 
I think just leaving the audience with knowing that you don't have to experience the same things that others are experiencing. You don't have to go through the same things to show empathy or to show people that you understand. Just being there with somebody, um, sitting with them, you don't have to fill the space with talk or you could just sit in silence and just sitting there sometimes goes further than anything else. Well said. I wanted to say this is this is a little uh, just a little reflection on something that you briefly mentioned in our last podcast was um, this idea of sympathy and that's why there's always sympathy cards and I'm sorry and and all these different things right uh, I just wanted to mention that I did in fact find an empathy card in the store for the first time in my life I actually bought it and it was a beautiful card and. I was going to send it to my friend who was going through a very difficult time right now. And it was, it was amazing. It, w- it was so beautiful, like the way that they um, define empathy in like the form of a poem. And it was great. That's, that's so amazing. Just, and what was that under? What, was the, what category in the store was that under? It was in the thinking of you section. Clearly, clearly you have grown significantly over the course of, I would say this year, but I know that you've been in the social work program for a couple of years, but just because we recorded that last episode several months ago and to see hear you from there to where you've come now and your understanding of the concepts of empathy and silence and also the interweaving aspect of the two and um, what you're able to provide for your clients and how you've worked on yourself is what we strive I think to to have our students do and become. And so I want to say that you don't have to be in a social work program if you work on yourself and you really put in the time and the dedication to understand who you are, what drives who you are, and you're able to reflect on it and start to take some action because we all know that we're really good at we shoulds, right? We should do this, we should we can do that, um, we shouldn't do this. And um, I know that change is really, really hard, but I think anything we're capable of working on when it comes to our emotional life, some of us need a little help in getting there, and that's perfectly, perfectly fine. But I see this as incredibly hopeful for those who want to shift the way that they relate to others and, again, as we all said, drive connection. So thank you both for this really, I think, growth-producing and enlightening uh, recording. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Myers. Yeah, look forward to where you continue to take this. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have a question for me, follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Myers Pod. That's D-R-M-E-Y-E-R-S-P-O-D. And send me a DM for a chance to get your question answered on the podcast. I've got some problems, yeah, I've got some questions. I need some help, point me in any direction. Clinical guidance is what I need to help me become who I'm meant to be. I've been searching for a teacher, another point of view. And I've been asking myself, what would Dr. Myers do?